unfortunately, we had two choppers come together and crash. The art of leadership in these things is, okay, so what do you do now when everything has gone to hell in a handbasket? Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to the final episode of Season 4. This conversation is with Bob Hunter. Bob is a former squadron commander of the Special Air Service Regiment. I was introduced to Bob by Tim Curtis after recording SAS Leadership Volume 2 with Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. This is the zenith of resilience that you want to aspire to where you are essentially bulletproof to whatever life throws at you. Guys raced into burning helicopters with detonating explosive charges and ammunition and pulled people out of the wreck. That second clip there is Tim speaking about the infamous 12 June 1996 Black Hawk disaster. Bob Hunter was there that night, in command. I spoke to Bob about his whole life, what drew him to the Army and Special Forces, SAS selection, his SAS career, the Black Hawk disaster, his life post-military, and lessons of leadership. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Bob Hunter. Bob, welcome to Life on the Line. Alex, thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um, love the work you've uh, been doing and, and pleased to have a chat. When and where were you born, Bob? Young fella out of, um, out of Tasmania uh, originally. My parents uh, immigrated there. Dad was a doctor and came out under the, uh, the sort of rural health service and uh, started the family down there. I was, I was born there, as were my two brothers and sister. And born as Winston Robert Maxwell Hunter, more readily known as Bob. Very powerful name, yes. Uh, you know, some English heritage there, but a lot of family links across the generations. But in good Australian fashion, trimmed it to Bob. Tell me a bit more about your childhood then. Were you in Tasmania for long or? We all sort of grew up there, predominantly all our schooling through that. I had the privilege of, of attending two schools, the Friends School, which was a co-ed school for my first six years, and then to the Hutchins School, which was a, a boys' school in the, in the latter part of uh, life. We did have one stint away into Germany where Dad had a year-long um, trip as a, as, as a doctor for the British Army on the Rhine. So we had an early taste of travel as a family, so that's certainly a, a big bent for us. But all of my schooling and, uh, and life until um, I, I joined the army was, uh, was out of Tassie. You also then had a bit of an early taste of military exposure through your dad's uh, attachment to those British forces. Uh, yes, uh, th there was a little understanding, but at five, the comprehension around that wasn't very strong. But dad also did serve in the Royal Navy in his early days, as did mum. She was a, a Wren, and that's where they met. 
And Dad carried that on when he came out. He rejoined the um, the Naval Reserve. So we always had a little bit of exposure to life in and around service. I had early interest through scouts and then army cadets at Hutchins. And, and that's probably what really fueled the whole interest and journey into defence. I'll come back to you in a moment, but just with your parents. So was your dad, did he study medicine to become a Navy doctor or which came first for him? No, no, the medicine came first and then this was part of national service in the uh, 50s. He deployed across a range of areas, uh, including the Pacific. It gave him a good taste of the lifestyle of, I guess, the whole military values-based organisation, which uh, is certainly something, as, as I've matured through life, has become a recurring theme for me of one of its great strengths. While you were growing up in Tassie, you accomplished a lot as a child. First 11 cricket, first 15 rugby, and you finished up school as head prefect. I was lucky enough to be given opportunities there. I really enjoyed my sport. I thrived on it as a good outlet for team and athletic endeavour. I played a whole range and gained a good, I guess, balance across different athletic capabilities in each of those sports. But there were the two that I really thrived on and enjoyed a couple of opportunities to represent the state, mighty Tasmania. We regularly played against Victoria and then also had a trip across to WA in one of the state carnivals. So, you know, enjoyed sport for all those things that it could bring opportunity to play some fun and some competitive endeavour. You've had that military presence or awareness just in your family from a young age, and it might not have had too much significance at first, because I suppose if you just grow up with it, it's just there. But as you get a bit older, do you explore, do you have other military history in the family, or how does that evolution of being drawn to military and the army start for you? In the early days, it was mainly about the sense of activity, a bit of adventure, some challenge. 18 and a half years old, what else would you think? But then as you've, uh, as you highlighted, as time goes on, you sort of, you, you draw back, you also become a little bit more interested in, in the family tree, done a bit of work around that. And whilst there's not lots of significant military, there is a, a track record of hunters way back. And for me, I guess it evolved more from my own personal experiences as time went on. Will you decide on the officer pathway and go to the Royal Military College, Duntroon? When you finish Duntroon, you graduate as a lieutenant and are posted as a platoon commander to 3 RAR in Holsworthy, Sydney, and play army rugby, bringing back some of that teenage skill set. Look, after four years at Duntroon, which, you know, in hindsight, you always look back and said there was some, some great times there, very collegiate four years, played a lot of sport, had some uh, physical challenges, but learned some stuff. You learned stuff about leadership in people. So then trans spurring that immediately in, you know, as a young 22-year-old and say, right, you're now in charge of this group of young men is a not insignificant challenge to your sense of confidence. So, you know, you've got to work hard and the lessons taught and then hopefully uh, learned okay, translated well in that environment. 3RA at the time was an emerging capability in the parachute battalion mould. So that instigated a whole range of challenges, not least of which the challenge of motivating and getting people to jump out of a perfectly good aircraft, carrying enormously heavy packs, knowing full well that you would then have to walk a long way to wherever the challenge on the ground lay. So, you know, those fundamentals were a part of life as a platoon commander. So you're always dealing with the physical and mental challenges of going into risk environments. Also learning the art form that it's not yes, sir, no, sir. 
you get more by influencing the team to take on challenges because they see it as a challenge, knowing that the team is is as fully integrated as you can, that everyone's got each other's backs. All those principles that if you end up in conflict, that's what you want to come out of your um, out of your military team. So, but, you know, a great foundation. And then also parts of the life in an infantry battalion. You know, sport is a big part of it. Health, making sure we're active, fit and capable. The occasional opportunity for events that celebrate the culture and the history. 3RA had a strong link back to the Battle of Kapyong in the Korean War. So it always gave you a sense that military in particular had a good link to its history. So you always had to respect that and make sure that we were not relearning lessons from the past and that we were stepping on the shoulders of those who had, uh, had been there before us, not falling around on the ground and restarting. The Battle of Kapyong is very proud military heritage to have for your battalion as it was a real infantry battle against the odds there for our forces. So I can imagine just joining a unit like that when it's steeped in history is going to be something that provides you a lot, not only pride, but also a sense of responsibility that you have to uphold that legacy of those before you. Absolutely. That's important across look any military, but I think it's also important you know, in organisations in general. Early in your time with 3RAR in your first year or so being there, you also find yourself on a three-month tour of Malaysia with rifle company Butterworth. A great experience. Whether it was overtly challenging or risky in the environment, not a lot of that, but it was a, a good environment where because you were deployed for three months, your team had to really evolve and develop a strong degree of trust. There were opportunities to socialize over in, uh, in Penang. So you got a bit of a, an exposure to culture. We had some really good training opportunities, some jungle training in genuine drunk jungle. We had a, a, an overarching challenge that we set ourselves around a, a 70 kilometer route march that we were all going to do as, a, as an organization, which I can tell you across some of the tracks and back roads in Malaysia is challenging geographically, let alone the one of um, endurance. So through that whole three-month time, there was some really good military training opportunities, some leadership opportunities around managing team members' morale and achieving a, uh, a focus and a mission that we'd set ourselves through that uh, three-month training period, as well as enjoying an opportunity to understand the region and the culture, which in the Australian context is actually quite significant because if you've actually lived and worked in a place, you, you have a much better tune of what that means in terms of how our neighbours live, what's important to them, and then an understanding of how that impacts when we do some things in our way, what's appropriate for, you know, a Western democracy isn't necessarily the same across our region. I don't just mean Malaysia, I mean across Indonesia, Southeast Asia in general, when they are our near neighbours and it's crucial to understand it. So I think formatively from a young officer perspective, that was another, another aspect that I didn't necessarily appreciate at the time, but was very valuable in years to come. We're talking about the second half of the 1980s here, so we're well into our long peace period at this point. We haven't even started our peacekeeping deployments in Somalia and the like yet. So I have to ask, what is it that appeals to you then about joining special forces in that operational, or I suppose lack of operational context? And did you join the army with an eye to special forces or how did that come about? 
Yeah, good question. I, I don't think I, I joined it originally with that mindset, but certainly through time at Duntroon, you started to better understand the military as an organisation, army as an organisation, the different corps, who was doing what, where opportunities lay. So certainly through that time, and particularly once I was in an infantry battalion, to me, it was a, a logical step to challenge self, certainly in the context of where things evolved and what the SAS were doing at the time relative to um, to other units, it, it had an attraction for its operational deployability. Well, SAS selection is one of the most definitive tests of oneself one can take on. Tell me about your journey to selection and then the course itself, which you attempt in February 1988. One of the, the aspects to the military is actually to have a plan. Unlike the movies where it just asks you to do it on a whim and a fancy and it all comes together very well, the military has trained you all the way through the art of the appreciation, actually understand what it is you're going to do, be clear on why you want to do it because the motivation to drive yourself through the physical and mental challenges of that course are not inconsequential. So actually understanding that. So I spent some time trying to understand that. I had uh, a couple of peers who were one or two years my senior who had achieved success on selection. So I was able to tap into their knowledge banks around what they had done in preparation and they had approached it seriously. And over an extended period, I also had a, um, a fellow platoon commander there with me, current chief of defence force, one uh, Angus Campbell. We were both aspiring to it, did a bit of mutual training as well as, as drove ourselves hard in our preparation, but had done it logically and over an extended period. So we'd built up, obviously, our work in an infantry battalion assisted, weight load walking, discipline, mental toughness to push through barriers of uh, fatigue and the like were, were useful. But more importantly, was understanding that it wasn't just about your physical capabilities. It was going to be about how you interacted with and within those on selection, how you interacted with those making assessments of you, how you adapted to challenges. Because no matter how many times you, you may hear a story of a particular challenge, I can tell you when you get to selection, those challenges are tenfold and or more purpose designed for self and to try and weed out failings or, or strengths in, in myself. So a fairly extended period of training, physical and mental application to it, probably the strongest level of, uh, of discipline around that regime that I've ever done in my life. And then subsequent, obviously, through that whole selection process, you know, working hard to achieve the physical challenges, to work interactively with those on the selection course, even though it is competitive and, and to try and get through. So we did that in Feb 88. I think we started with 35 officers on the course, 11 of us completed and seven were selected. In the numbers at the time, that was a reasonable number of which a number have carried on into distinguished military careers and have many of them are our, our, our current crop of generals out of that selection course, not least of which CDF, Chief of Army, Rick Burr, Special Ops, Gus Gilmore, and then a number of others. You know, an interesting mix of people came out of that uh, selection. The class of 88 is certainly quite memorable then. Do you have any specific anecdotes from the course, either with yourself or one of the notable individuals you just mentioned you'd like to share? Oh, no, one couldn't tell out of stories out of school about others. Uh, so I think it's probably... I, I had to try. I had to try. Whenever there's a reunion of us or others on it, there's always a good story here and there. And uh, there's plenty around things that in our mind are hilarious. But I, I do note that when we try and explain it to people, people don't necessarily understand the level of fatigue that was going on when, you know, we fell and dropped things. 
I do recall that at one point, though, you know, an activity where we were carrying lots of hairy, heavy water jerrys back and forth on some mindless task of moving from A to B and then back again just to help us understand uh, our place in the world. On one side, thinking that helping carry a lot was a good task, but then from the assessment point of view, it was regarded as, um, oh, you were being a bit individualistic there, Bob. You weren't working with the team and making others carry their weight. So an experience that it went through a number of phases, including the resistance to interrogation, and all of which helped mould you to understand the importance of the core values of the degree of trust required in your teammates. So then when you did come into it as a young officer or a younger officer, not necessarily that young now, about 26, you come in with a, uh, a strong understanding of the importance of that small group team and listening to and taking on the capabilities. You pass selection. What happens next for you? What are the SAS doing at that time? Is the focus counterterrorism roles or what do you go into? The counterterrorism role was a clear and significant capability in the organisation. The world around us was not a particularly good spot. And then as, uh, as time moved on, even more regionally, it started to take on a range of risks. And, and I'll come to one of those when we, uh, when we talk 1996. So it was an important part to the organisation. It had a, uh, a cycle through roles. So you did a couple of years war roles building up. And then in your third year as a sort of group, you would take on uh, a counter-terrorism role. That was uh, frontline capability. It linked across to global experiences, learnings from terrorist incidents and, and, and activities. The thing with the military is no matter how good your plan is, remember there's an opposing force with an alternate plan trying to disrupt your own plan. So you can't afford just to sort of say, oh, we can do this, we're all good to go. So you, it's a continual evolution and that is one of the things that the organisation, SAS, and even within, within it, the troops and the squadrons were always striving to be better, to learn from. So you were involved in a very rigorous culture around lessons learned, reflection, feedback to you and and definitely as an officer, when you didn't get it right in those decision moments, you soon got some good counsel on that or bad counsel, whichever way you, you, you took it. So the organisation had a, a dynamic and an evolving capability. I was uh, privileged to be in three squadron in L Troop, vehicle mounted operations, which when my water operator and freefall friends talk to each other, the only one I point out that to then subsequently spend a fair bit of time being used in conflicts in Timor and certainly Iraq and the like was vehicle mounted. So it's the only capability. Talk to me just in the early 90s, what the culture is like at the SAS. How does it feel to be in our, at that time, only premier full-time special forces unit? Pretty special. And I don't mean that, you know, as a funny play on the name. You're privileged to be there. You worked hard to be selected. Those around you had similar backgrounds. So it was an organisation that, that always strove to achieve. And that was across the officer class. I had the, the great privilege of being led by a number of very good uh, COs. My peers, some were obviously guys I'd done selection and I knew very well, but also others from a um, couple of years different. So you're always generally surrounded by good people, let alone the soldiers and NCOs who served for longer and had greater experience and knowledge. And, and you couldn't help but tap into that and make sure you were learning from it. So it was an organisation that strove for it. And, and I know it remains so, no matter whatever's topical at the moment, but it is, uh, it, it's part of the ethos of how the place 
works and none of that has changed in my view right from its early days all the way through the Vietnam era, early days of counter-terrorism through subsequent conflicts, Timor and uh, and, and Middle East. Um, that, that ethos remains a part of its significant value and its, uh, and its strength of culture. I've had other SAS veterans such as Tim Curtis and Ben Pronk describe to me the principle of mission command that really operated in the SAS where, yes, you have the designated leadership positions, but the good leaders listen to every team member's ideas because most of those people in that role were bright people with good ideas worth listening to. And it's not about just managing downwards. It is not democratic, but it's listening and all-encompassing. Absolutely. Look, and, and particularly in special forces, you have small force elements, you know, small teams, five, six people. You're highly interdependent on everyone's capabilities and people with way more experience, certainly as a young officer than when I was in that, in that position as a troop commander. You had no choice, but it was also best practice and uh, you were best served by making sure you heard all those voices and took the best course you could on the information you had. And at different times, you know, sometimes you've got to make a harder call and you're not quite sure whether that's right or wrong, but that's the art of leadership in those challenging circumstances. The world of leadership doesn't mean the individual with the title actually knows it most. The true essence of leadership is being able to then understand, know your own strengths and weaknesses, have a good degree of self-awareness and then go, right, well, where do I need to supplement or complement those with those around me in the team? If you're working to, as uh, the description you've used, Mission Command, what is the overall intent? What are we actually trying to achieve? Then you're going to get it right more than uh, you get it wrong. Well, 1994 is a busy year for you. You're in the SAS. It kicks off, though, with a wedding, and then it leads to some overseas deployments as well. In between, actually, I'd, I'd had two years in Townsville. Part of the officer development is you don't remain for extended periods in one role. Part of your military process is to actually experience a range of things. So I had a, um, had a normal staff rotation. I actually really enjoyed going up to Townsville, which was headquarters three brigade. I worked on a staff role as, as an ops captain. And three brigade at that time had uh, the readiness deployment for the Australian Army. So again, you're at a front end level of being prepared for and as an ops captain, and uh, had some experiences. We had a deployment of people go across to Somalia. So learning those lessons around the importance of, you know, your planning, your staffing processes. Again, it's just part of your military progress. I was also very lucky that Nicole, my wife, and I established the real strength of our relationship in those two years in Townsville and then married in early 94 and then privileged to have a posting to UNSO, United Nations True Supervisory Organisation based out of Israel and its surrounding countries. So that was where that overseas international experience came in and you know I said learning about culture a little bit in Southeast Asia this one was even even more significant on a, sort of an international slash global scale. UN True Supervisory Organisation at that time had been you know going for 20 plus years it was there trying to sustain a balance of peace in the, the neighbourhoods around Israel and look, those conflicts have been going for centuries as we look at the situation, you know, 25 years on, one would argue that not much has changed in the surrounding neighbourhood. It's just which countries in conflict. So, I, and I don't mean that flippantly. It's a disaster for those involved. 
But from an experience perspective, this was one where true supervisory, we were observers. So I worked for six months on the Golan Heights, living in Tiberias, observing the quite benign and peaceful environment of what was once a, a nasty conflict zone on the Golan Heights between Israel and Syria. That is now obviously completely reversed. And then the second six months I spent in the north in uh, Nahiria in uh, Observer Group Lebanon. And that was a conflict zone there in the South Lebanon military zone. My roles as other UN observers was more in the observation reporting. We weren't armed, so we had to practice some pretty good risk management. Our role was about information and sharing information and trying to assist with preventing conflicts by being able to report so that you had active forces, particularly in the South Lebanon zone between Hezbollah and uh, obviously the IDF, uh, Israeli Defence Force. The UN is an organisation, love it or hate it, that brings together many from across the globe had some great experiences. So on observation posts, you would spend time with a range of military people. It wasn't just a little Aussie clique. So with people from the Norwegian Defence Force, the Swedes, the Irish, Canadians, Chileans, Argentinians. So um, you got a great understanding of how their military worked and evolved. And each of them had a, a different pathway and a story compared to where we were. Australia tended to send off its younger next generation in preparation for their leadership roles. Other militaries sent their more experienced as thanks and reward for a good life of service. So militarily, we understood that. The environment was challenging. But then the other part, you're in one of civilization's starting points. So there's a great sense of history, whether it's religious, Christian, Islam or the like. You've got a great understanding of that. As a, uh, a small military detachment or contingent attending the Gallipoli Anzac Day service in uniform, so a little less scale than it sort of evolved to, but very privileged to, to be able to do that whilst serving and look back on that piece of ground, terrain and that history with a soldier's eye and appreciating the challenges that lay in that environment whilst being able to sort of serve in that part of the world as our predecessors then did in subsequent conflicts. For me, it was just one of those fundamentally fascinating, challenging, interesting opportunities that came from service as a young officer in the uh, Australian Army. But it also shows that variety of skill set you need to be able to utilise on these kind of operations in that you talk about a benign area, then a more active conflict zone, but also the fact you're in there as a peacekeeping role, you're unarmed. So you've been doing this training back home, say, on counterterrorism role and then vehicle mounted stuff. And then the role you're actually deployed for, again, is quite different. You have to utilise more core elements of your training to answer the mission brief here. Absolutely, and, and that is one of the fundamental parts to military training, to be adaptive. There is not one size fits all. Those who are less flexible or inflexible are always gonna be challenged. The environment of conflict is not an easy one. It's got so many dynamics. You can't name them and do justice to them, but environment, geography, weather, the opposing force, those who are there and are innocent in the whole, um, whole piece. So you've got to be able to look at the situation, analyse it quickly. The old appreciation that I referred to as a planning process You've got to do it on the fly sometimes. And so intrinsically you bring in, you know, your own risk perspective, try and analyse the so what. 
so what does that mean? What happens here? What if this goes wrong? What's our contingency plan? So those skill sets are required whether you're in conflict or not. So therefore, intrinsically, they are a good part of what's been developed and you've been assisted in your training through all those uh, years prior. And just briefly on Nicole, did she stay in Townsville when you went on this deployment or? In that time, Alex, this was one of those fabulous postings where you were privileged enough to be a company. So Nicole came with me and uh, she too was able to experience all of the wonders of uh, the region and culture without the risk of up on the Golan or, uh, or the like. But some good experiences for partners that also helped create a balance of that social and community life. So that was uh, a really nice piece or part of the privilege of that deployment. In 1995, you assumed command of one squadron. What does that entail? Okay, so this was the uh, return on promotion from uh, UN. I spent uh, six months in a role called operational research, which was uh, understanding capabilities just as we moved through the cycle to then transition and take over one squadron. One squadron was then taking on the role of the counterterrorism squadron. A significant build-up and training and test of capabilities developing some team groups, all focused around the counterterrorism capability. So at that time, moving into take on the capability at the end of 1995, moving through to 1996, strategically four years out from the Olympics. So again, with an eye on that, always about that capability development, but also regionally there were a range of challenges starting to really manifest themselves that said, okay, well, what do we do if we have to assist in a terrorism-related incident overseas? There was a couple of incidents. There was a backpacker in Cambodia, David Wilson, who'd been taken hostage and was being held by all accounts in a sort of remote jungle or, uh, or rural setting. So those were the sort of strategic risk issues that that capability was looking forward at, as well as just the skill sets around live fire, assault, being able to immobilise an incident site and always with that strong, clear vision statement, save the lives of the hostages. And I think it's so important we don't understate the level of which you guys are training at. As we'll get to in a moment about 1996, it is an incredibly serious level of training. It's a dangerous level of training. And you are readying yourselves constantly to be at that peak performance capacity so you can be utilized at a moment's notice for the highest level of need. That can't be understated. Relative to other parts of the Australian Army, it was at the shortest notice to move. People were always on a readiness level, needed to be accessible, available, return to barracks quickly. So that had an impact on what you could do individually. It had an impact on what you and your family could do. So for a 12-month period, you are on a high state of alert, preparation and skills capability, individually and as an organisation. Bob, 12 June 1996 is a sadly significant date in the history of the Special Air Service Regiment. Can you please share with me your memories of that day? A training activity that was essential to our overall skills capability. It was working with One Aviation Regiment, a highly professional organisation and the experts in the use of the Black Hawk helicopters. Obviously, they were in Townsville, we're in Perth, so we deployed to the East Coast. One of our regular training activities where we practised range of individual and small team skill sets, fast roping, rappelling, 
being able to snipe accurately from a, a, an aircraft platform. So we had a whole range of those activities that went on to ensure we were compatible with the choppers, the crews. We were well trained and linked together. And so as part of just those individual building blocks, we then also needed to bring it together in terms of an organisational capability. How could we work as a whole team, a squadron with a squadron and being able to um, use the best of the assets? Some of the strategic risk issues that were starting to manifest was a, a capacity to not be able to just assault onto a vessel or, or near an aircraft or onto a, a high-rise building, but was um, what about these other environments that might start to present themselves, you know, a rural, a jungle and urban location. So we practised a scenario around hostages in such a setting and being able to deploy our force element, getting troops on the ground very quickly supported by aerial fire support. That's the essence of it without lots of tactical discussion. So we practiced this through the afternoon a couple of times, a dry fire one without live fire, one with live fire and done a, uh, and a dusk run so that we had well and truly versed ourselves, we all thought, in the structure, how we were going to deploy three choppers abreast, two fire support ahead and providing support to the troops on the ground and then a commander's reserve in the fourth aircraft up in the, uh, in the back with uh, a team that I had with me so that if we needed to supplement. So reasonably uh, straightforward military tactics. So despite all of that, once we got into the last one, Dark Knight, the added full-on essence of a full live fire with some distractions going off, the NVG challenges that come with a, a reduction in visibility and peripheral vision. And ultimately, unfortunately, we had two choppers come together and crash. And again, look, there's a, a range of... Um, Stories around each of this, the significance for me, though, is the event happened and we had a massive loss of life, 15 of um, the SAS troops and three of the aviation regiment. And they're all people I know and still to this day reflect sadly on their loss. Unfortunately, they're all good young men and none of that will ever, ever go away. So the incident itself was a challenge. The other choppers were able to get on the ground. Black 4 got stuck in the air because there was nowhere to land, despite the best efforts from people to get on the ground. But it also provided an opportunity that the art of leadership in these things is, OK, so what do you do now when everything has gone to hell in a handbasket? You know, in hindsight, as reflected, there was a need to try and make sure there was some communications to Townsville to set up emergency evacs. So that's sort of done. Meanwhile, we, we sat there. But again, troops on the ground reacted instinctively and with significant levels of personal courage and bravery. Whether they were the troops just on the, the logistics and non-SAS necessarily qualified, they all responded with great bravery. The troops that got out of some of the crashed aircraft with injuries of their own, went back in to try and save their mates' lives or at least get them out of what was to burning uh, carcasses of aircraft, exploding rounds, pyrotechnics and a range of other parts to, uh, to aircrafts um, that were uh, disintegrating. The subsequent to that is uh, there were 14 bravery awards for those who responded. But when it's all said and done, that's the least of it. The rest is about the families mates who lost mates, and that never goes away as a challenge individually and a challenge for everyone else involved that evening. It's interesting, I talk about this quite regularly, but it, um, it never, never doesn't grab you. 
the aftermath is challenging for everyone. For those who survived, survivors' guilt, for those who weren't there and could have made a difference, they felt. For those who were injured and a couple who were permanently incapacitated, the ramifications never stopped because the event stopped. We were supported as best we could. The, the, the system provided uh, counselling to help individuals through those sort of events. There are always going to be post-traumatic stress out of it and, uh, and, and many had and I myself but it, it's then how you, you move on and build from that that is important. Hardest impacted of course with the families, the wives, partners, children, devastating for them, parents who lost their son. So I, I can't underestimate and I can't understate how challenging that was for everyone. Organisationally my leader Mike Silverstone was just outstanding in terms of absorbing and taking on that role because in the hindsight of it, whilst the incident was devastating, what hadn't gone away was the requirement for that operational capability. So as an organisation, and I, I don't brush over the trauma and grief and, and the whole process of where we laid our comrades to rest, our colleagues, our mates, all of that had to happen, but it was crucial to it. But also the importance of what we were doing couldn't be undervalued and it certainly wasn't right look you blokes all have a month off and we'll uh, we'll see you in a little while when you when you when you're back ready to go that operational capability there was only one in australian defense force and it needed to be reconstituted so that was our role and we had to reconstitute that fairly quickly and we were supported by the whole regiment I'll talk about the wider regiment family who further supported on a number of issues in a moment but organizationally that gave the team a focus we had replacements come in to fill those uh, devastatingly lost roles. People, leaders, team members, skills capabilities. So they had to integrate into our squadron. We had to be dealing with the, so what were you doing issues? Were we sound in what we had done? Were we working to our capability statements? All of those sort of things became part and parcel of the next six to nine months. You can't just be given the space to grieve. Questions have to be answered to ensure that kind of thing cannot be avoided. Or Absolutely, Alex. Look, you, you, you know, there is no shirking the responsibility. You take on leadership roles in, in any form. You then hold or are held responsible and the accountabilities of, of leadership. You know, we were the ones who made the plans. We worked hard with the aviation regiment. Did we do it to the nth degree? The subsequent board of inquiry went through that with a fine-tooth comb. My dad, as a doctor, had a great expression. He wished he'd had a retrospectoscope. And we went through that internally. So what? Why did you do that? Could you have done this? Of course we could. There's always a number of ways to solve a particular problem, particularly involving military tactics and techniques. And in hindsight, there will be people who tell you which one would have been a better option. Ours evolved. We tried, trained it, tested it. And for all those involved on the night in question, we were comfortable that's what it was. Unfortunately, like any accident, a couple of links in that chain led to the two aircraft coming together. There were some changes around the preparation processes, the timeframes required for planning, the risk management levels, the controls and accountabilities. So lessons were learned and carried forward into current day. But from our perspective, organisationally, the people, they're the greatest impacts and none of those uh, fade easily over time. Quickly, just to clarify for the listener, so where were you when this was happening? Were you on the ground observing or what was your actual perspective of the event? As the officer in command of the squadron, I was the senior officer responsible for what our squadron was doing. 
I had operations staff at all levels. Our leadership group worked then closely with the equivalent in the aviation squadron. As uh, indicated, we had six helicopters involved. Two were involved in the sniping role, three with the assault aircraft, and the fourth was the command with a reserve. So that's where I was, tucked in behind the three assault aircraft, of which two were Black 1 and Black 2 were the two that collided. I'm literally watching it unfold beneath me out of the door of a helicopter. So every instinct is, let's get down on the ground. But uh, the challenge was space in the area, the ongoing hazards to other aircraft from the explosions and burning aircraft. So as it was, we weren't able to get immediately on the ground despite the frustrations of my reserve team in that aircraft. That's calling on your training to try your best to put those emotional responses aside and just know what your role is and how to deal with the situation and what you need to do to maximise the best outcome. When you're faced with a no shit moment, you're faced with a no shit moment. No matter the level of training, the emotions are raw, the adrenaline, the so what, trying to think coherently, what do we do now in the heat of the moment? And the time since, you know, I can't recall all of my uh, emotions and thoughts. There's transcripts in um, Board of Inquiry that would give me a nice refresher. But in the end, uh, I just know it was traumatic for all, no matter how strong our training and the instinctive response of those on the ground, which, as I articulated before, was uh, was fabulous. We were unable to save everyone. The impacts of the crash were, were traumatic and the subsequent retrieval and, and how people worked to try and save lives. Then I had to make the hardest call of my life, which was to the CO to let him know because the families on the West Coast, you know, the two-hour time difference, those sort of stories filter out very, very quickly. So I need to get information to him so that families and the organisation could try and deal with that immediate impact, that immediate need to try and communicate to people. Looking at moving ahead, I think it's a wonderful reflection on the regiment in terms of its resilience, in terms of its camaraderie, in terms of its leadership and the strong foundational bonds you've all forged that, yes, you are grieving, you're traumatized, you're under the microscope as well, yet you know you have to push on, reforge, rebuild, maintain that capability and have to keep forward momentum with all the other work you're doing. And the fact you're all there for each other to make that happen is a real testament to the SAS. It is, and, and it was the other point I just wanted to touch on, is the wider SAS organisation has a very strong theme around being a family. You know, an extended family doesn't mean everyone in the family has to get on, but it is an organisational component, if you like. The SAS Association really stepped up and came to the fore in that post-Black Hawk. Um, there'd been a strong linkage through the Vietnam area, and rightly so. There was a, a great carter of, of men across some generations there. But then said, all right, well, we now have a more immediate trauma and a need to assist. How can we assist? Um, there was a place for people where it was outside the barracks. It was people who shared their own losses from past uh, conflicts of mates, able to sort of um, be a, a council and the like. There was also a, a group of very generous people who didn't know much about the organisation who started the what became known as the SAS Resources Trust, which then developed funding systems that have carried on to this day and provide a fabulous support to families, to uh, those who've lost fathers, their loved ones, particularly emphasis on support to um, children. 
of those who've lost their lives in training or operations. And that, that has been ongoing. And, and obviously, in more recent years, with um, further casualties from other conflicts, in particular in, uh, in Afghanistan, um, been able to support the families. And it's that wider sense of support network that is just one of the great attributes or aspects of the organisation and its uh, wider culture. As we've touched on, the show has to go on. You still very much have a job to do. Tell me about Bougainville in 1997. I hadn't been sacked. I hadn't been court-martialed. The accountabilities that went with Board of Inquiry and um, organisationally and then individually had all been dealt with. So I had a pathway forward to continue in the military. And whilst you are serving and you're functional and capable, then when jobs arise, people are needed on those. And this was the first group of people to go in on the ground in, in Bougainville to start the Bougainville Peace Monitoring Deployment in conjunction with uh, New Zealand. The Australian commander who was nominated out of um, Sydney was Colonel Steve Josky, who I'd known from um, my military days at Duntroon, and he was uh, building a uh, deployable headquarters to take on the ground along with the Kiwis unarmed and be part of setting up in a country that had been ravaged by war no trust with the Bougainville Revolutionary Army amongst anyone from uh, the West coming in, let alone anyone who had strong ties to the PNGDF. So it was um, a pretty risky sort of a profile and needed what was called a Special Forces Liaison Officer, someone who had worked on a headquarters. So again, those experiences in Townsville came to the fore and uh, I was on that headquarters as a um, an ops major. So we spent three months there uh, on that deployment for myself, literally building it from the ground up. A war-ravaged country, being able to set up uh, headquarters, the port and a number of other parts coming back into play that were residuals from Bougainville Copper Mine, building trust and rapport so the experiences in UNSO in the Middle East started to come to the fore. I mean, you know, the cultural awareness, again, being unarmed, how good. I did uh, have a chuckle when uh, my boss gave me the sort of job. He said, well, part of the role will also be making sure if there's a hostage incident that we've got a plan to uh, pull some resources together from support offshore and uh, come in and rescue. And I said, boss, what do you think uh, the likelihood is that I will be separate to the group that may be taken hostage? Oh, probably not much, but I'm sure you'll make it up as you go along. All words to that effect. It was another of those sort of challenges. And when it all came down to it, it was actually my last military deployment before um, deciding that at mid-30s, a young family living uh, away from our wider family support, maybe the military and, and what it distinctly could offer, and I knew the, the sort of likely pathway steps, or did I need to uh, try something else? So post that deployment, great experience, a foundation that used a whole range of my experiences across time and um, then in, enabled, uh, for me, a, a great sense of satisfaction, but also a catalyst to say, all right, do you want to keep disappearing off and leaving Nicole and what by then was young baby Lucy, or are you going to be part of that in a little closer fashion? So that was the catalyst for change as opposed to any deep legacy from accident or any other specific element. Before we go further in you leaving the army and what you go on to do after that, but looking back over your domestic counterterrorism work, your various operational deployments, your peacekeeping work, the successes, and when faced with great adversity like the Black Hawk disaster too, what did your time in the SAS teach you the most about leadership and resilience? The first was the importance of trust. 
importance of trust at all levels, upwards that your leaders were doing the right thing across to those who worked with you, peers or in your leadership room, and then also downwards and for them upwards as well. Because if you don't have that element, whether it's the military or any other organisation, your capacity to lead and lead effectively is significantly diminished. And trust does not come easily. It comes after repeated doing what I say I will do, being clear in my communications and ensuring that I've taken, you know, advice where I can and I'm making informed decisions and I am understanding and knowing the impact on my people and am I using the best people for it. So there's a whole bunch of pieces to all of that. That to me is, is the foundation for success in any sort of role, whether it's in military leadership, organisational leadership, community leadership. So ultimately, you're motivated to leave the military out of a desire for family, to be closer and see what new opportunities life can bring you out of uniform. Army has taught you to have a plan, to operate to a plan. So when you're discharging, do you have a plan? What's next career-wise? Like all good plans. Seems very good on paper. Didn't survive contact with the enemy? Yes, that's the one. Worked with uh, a couple of my former colleagues, ex-military we're all sort of very confident in our you know, military pedigrees, our capacity to manage risk environments and particularly security risk environments. So it seemed like a, a good commercial variation of what we had done. So we started that idea 12 months on and eating into a, um, a budget from the household loan perhaps wasn't a great capitalisation plan for our business, but you know, we were a small partnership and it seemed okay. We did have a clarity of what we were trying to do. The region, as we started our business, OAM, colloquially known as Osprey Asset Management, but more appropriately amongst ourselves, old army men, and sort of leveraged off our pedigree and tried to work particularly with resource sector companies. Indonesia to our north at that time was struggling through the transition post Sahato, so destabilised, so the risk environment was there. There were plenty of sort of companies working at elaborate rates. So again, you know, our first step into that world, look, had a plan, did a few different things, but really then started to hit a straps about 12 months in, working in resource sector, Southeast Asia, and that became our, our model of business for the next sort of 10 years. We were working everything from how to deal with challenging environments around illegal mining, how to better understand your local community to stop acts of criminality or rioting and violence, how to work with police forces who may not necessarily have the same first world standards and or pay structures. Quite a diverse world started to build our commercial and corporate understanding, started to build a network of capabilities, build up our own processes and procedures and tried to build the business in that fashion and including doing work here in Australia in a very corporate first world environment as well. You land a significant contract in Iraq, but before we get there, the world dramatically changes on September 11, 2001. From someone who had been out the army a few years by that point, I have to wonder when that major event happened, did you look at that and think, gosh, I'm glad I'm not in the military because I know I'd be having to deal with this if I was, or did the thought of men, I imagine you still knew in the forces cross your mind who would be dealing with the brunt of that? All of the secondary, when you've spent, you know, 16 plus years training for that, you look at it and you go, okay, well, there'll be some flow on legacies from that. If I was still serving, what would they be? But also by that stage, you know, I'd, I'd moved on in a little bit of time and age. And so you're not necessarily going to be down at that younger frontline level. 
So on that side, yep, I look with an informed eye and enjoy seeing what the uh, evolution and challenges were that our militaries were going to have, have to face. As they came over an extended time, I also, you know, started to have concerns about how that would impact people on repeated missions, but that's a story that's not mine to tell. But on the other side to it, it also changed the world of commercial risk management, Alex. So corporately, I'd set this pathway. I wanted it to succeed. I wanted a business to be sound in terms of what we offered clients. It then presented an alternate opportunity. And that's the sort of segue into, well, where was the next level of, of risk and opportunity? You know, whether we're called a private security company, in less positive moments, people call them mercenaries. But when you're working in a, uh, a controlled environment like Iraq, working for aid agencies, United Nations, you're providing a service and support because there is not a capacity to do it through your normal means of either local security military or the wider military of, say, the US and other allied nations in that conflict. Because it's in 2004 that you win two $30 million contracts in post-war Iraq, and I read that OAM won that on the back of its who dares wins philosophy. It's a great expression, isn't it? Who dares wins. It has that sort of element of gung-ho, just do something on a women of fancy and uh, she'll be right. Mm. Very Aussie, mate. Yeah, yeah, love it. But it couldn't actually be further from the truth. The years of training, I've mentioned the planning and appreciation processes, whether it's done quickly or, or over a longer time frame. If you get the fundamentals of that right and you can identify the risk issues, the challenges, and then put in place some sort of useful plans and how it could work and evolve, then you've got a chance of making it happen. And because we came out of the Australian SAS, everything we did was usually around small scale, smart. How do we try and do something that's not so overt, that's a, a little more discreet? Harks back all the way to the sort of Vietnam era, you know, if a patrol got compromised, then it had failed in its mission. It was designed to stay under the radar. And I don't mean that too simplistically, but that's that sort of key principle. And also we were a small company. We didn't have lots of capital. We weren't backed by big levels of capital or influence, which um, there were a bunch of American companies in there. There were some Brit companies with those sort of ties and holding big guarding contracts and all those sort of things. We were doing some small and smart work and just trying to work to our level. However, Pete was on the ground and having a chat to a UN official who said, look, we've got to get this voter registration process through. The original sort of plan where perhaps we're going to use more of the American military isn't going to work. It needs to be done by and seen to be done by Iraqi so that people can't claim that the ballot is compromised. And so I said, look, we're putting this tender out. We're a bit short notice. You know, there's plenty of security companies. We'll probably get a, a solution that'll work. So obviously we couldn't compete with the logistics capacity that some companies had. You had to get it across a, a span of a country, 800 plus kilometres north, south and, and wide, high risk, active opposing forces in the various levels of guerrilla that had been set up post-conflict by the Iraqi military. So we just came up with a slightly um, different sort of plan. There were no commercial helicopters working in country, despite, you know, my past incidents. Choppers are a great capability and they provided mobility and some flexibility. So we thought that was a smaller, smarter solution. And then small teams could deploy two landing zones that were set up at short notice so that we weren't risking getting compromised on the ground, using operational security principles, pulling together teams that had a mix of, of expats, generally with a military pedigree and um, local 
local Iraqis generally built around, you know, team, family units, people who knew each other's from different tribal groups or cultural groups. We put together this plan, thought, look, we'll put it in with shot. And that was probably where the who dares wins came. And then surprise, surprise, on Tuesday, they're talking to us and say, right, we, we just want to understand a bit more about this. Where are you going to get the choppers? How are you going to do this? Within a few days, we had been awarded that contract. And let me tell you, that is an oh shit moment. Be careful what you ask for. It then kicked off a massive sort of mobilisation of networks to try and find capable ex-military types that we knew and trusted. We obviously fell back on Aussies very strongly because there's good cultural ties and we knew what the standards of training were. And, and again, the small smart was our preference. We were going to work as low profile as possible. Our vehicles that we were procuring were sort of off the street utes. We'd dress as and keep a low profile within one big gun trucks because all they were is a target for a, an improvised explosive device and plans around how we would use the choppers, let alone find them. We found them out of Poland, I think, in the end. We needed to self-insure. The UN were using sort of cash because the banking system in and out of Iraq didn't exist very well. So an early challenge was how do we get $6 million cash across a boundary into Jordan so we could put it in a bank so we could use it to uh, hire people and, and the like. So look, a whole bunch of um, work through it as we go. Some would say make it up as we go. But if you follow the sound principles plan, we were able to get a plan together, a workforce of 400. We contracted another company, Hart, in the south, who uh, already had sort of a, a structure there and uh, pulled it together to run the, um, the ballot process which required, oh, I think, 30, 30 tonnes of, uh, of papers across um, 32-odd um, locations where people could then come into and we had to secure that once the, the ballot registration had done because there was no registered voter population. So this was the first task. And I don't wish to, you know, sort of just gloss over it, but we got it all done in a, um, a very short time frame. Obviously, a little bit of luck, but some sound principles around how the teams came together, a need for cultural awareness for Iraqis and a mix of expats to work together, a structure so that everyone could watch each other's back, low profile in terms of the assets we used and managing planning and operational security. So we wouldn't tell the, the pilots and the crews where they were going until just prior to the emission brief. So there was no chance of compromise of where the chopper was or where it was going to land and landing zones were set up at short notice. So again, wasn't compromised by having a profile on the ground that then would allow, you know, an opposing or a guerrilla force to uh, interdict it and attack it and cause problems good people, good leaders in the team who worked very hard across an extended period to deliver what was a pretty solid outcome. I'd made a note to ask you next how you felt your military skills and particularly leadership transitioned into corporate life. But I think everything you just described there, Bob, how you approach the problems, how you set out means of solution, the security approaches, the logical follow through, that I think just demonstrates in spades how totally applicable and transferable that skill set is into this civilian corporate sector. Can't go past it, Alex. Because of the success of that, we then did the actual election based on the same principles. So that fundamentally drove us. So when I then talk about this to commercial groups or leaders, you know, it sounds like a boy's own adventure. And in some respects it is, but it was actually dealing with a significant risk environment, having a plan to do it, being adaptive to the environment, responsive as circumstances arose, not just stuck in one plan. Hmm. Sounds like a good commercial recipe for me. Talk me then, Bob, through the highlights of your career after that work in Iraq, and did you get that balance with the family you were looking for? 
I'm the very proud dad of three now young adults, Lucy, who's a young doctor, Maxie who's just finishing his degree, and Pippi who's just starting her degree. I was able to. We had a fabulous family adventure in 2007 where we took sort of a term off and travelled WA and Northern Territory with a camper trailer. But it was just one of those wonderful moments where the balance of having done all of this other stuff then needed to take an opportunity to say, all right, well, let's take some real time out and make sure we have a, a good family adventure. If you ask any of the three kids today or the three young adults today, what is one of their highlights, unashamedly that family adventure was. But again, through different parts, being able to then, because of having some flexibility in, in how I worked and, and then finishing in the OAM business, taking up some consulting in leadership and teams, I've really enjoyed that flexibility to then ensure, you know, they've had solid education, solid life experiences, which hopefully set them up to be um, good young adults. It's also enabled Nicole to carry on her own professional career in, in education. She's now an educational leader at a small community school that we fundamentally think is a fabulous model. It's got strong nature-based elements to it. So I think all of it has then allowed me to get that wider balance. Nicole will always tell you I then spent too much time coaching rugby and being involved in that sport and perhaps even surf club. But, you know, that's just another part to me. The whole sense of community and teams and being involved in the equivalent of what is an old village model is very important to me. And I've really enjoyed that over many, many years. It's been over 20 years since you left. How do you look back and reflect on your time with the SAS today? Overwhelmingly positively. The experiences of the people, the long-term friendships, and I don't just mean in, you know, my peers and, and officers, but also any soldiers and NCOs who I had the privilege to serve with. The experiences in military in general, the importance of people, key aspect for me around leadership, lead by example. If I won't do it, then I won't ask others to. Well, Bob, I'm very grateful for your coming on Life on the Line to share your story, your insight, and all the lessons you learned. Thank you for your service and for your time today. Alex, uh, thank you too for creating these opportunities. Verbal histories, one way or another, I think are crucial of adding to what has gone on in the past and gives perhaps a, a wider group an opportunity because we're all a bit time poor and can't read stuff anymore. So thank you very much. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. That was my conversation with Bob Hunter. I'm most grateful to Bob for coming on the show and speaking so openly. This is the final episode of season four. Thank you to all our loyal listeners and most of all to our guests for your service and for trusting us with your stories. It's been an amazing journey for the whole team and we still have more to go. Stay subscribed and follow us on social media to find out what's coming in 2021. Thanks this season go to John Lynham for repeated use of his track, War. And massive thanks to Harry Moffat and SAS original rock band, The Externals, for letting us play so many of their songs. Follow Life on the Line podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTLpod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, and Sharon Maskeldare of Thistle Productions. Artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Our theme music is by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you all for listening, and lest we forget.